We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. And welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman, a 45-year experienced expert fire investigator and a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. I also want to say bonjour to our friends in France, our listeners there. We have a large following there, and in the UK, Germany, and Canada. Um, I'm here with Donna Ingram. Hello. And um, we're going to be talking today, we're very honored to have a couple of really good guests in the first segment. Um, uh, I'm happy to call them my friends. Um, One is uh, Jamie Novak, who is a a full-time fire investigator for the St. Paul Fire Department uh, for the last 21 years, and he's the owner of of Novak Investigations. He was a Minnesota State Fire Marshal and an arson investigator, and he has 37 years of fire experience in the fire service and 32 years as a fire investigator. He has um, burned approximately 130 houses uh, uninsured, I want to tell you that, first of all, one room at a time and flashover and help blow up and propane and natural gas in 11 houses. Uh, he's also set over a thousand fires for testing and training. Just want to say hi to you, Jamie. Hi. Thank you, Mike. And hello, everybody. Glad I could be here. Thank you. And our other guest, and who's also on the line, is uh, is David Bridges. Uh, he's an associate at uh, Medgar Gear, a catastrophic loss practice group, uh, which is an attorney firm in uh, Minneapolis. He does complex civil investigations, including fires, explosions, structural failures, catastrophic losses, and other things across the United States. Um, he, has, uh, he is an IAAI CFI and a candidate for the Board of Directors for the International Association of Arson Investigators. And because he is an attorney, he has a nice little disclaimer he has to give us. Go ahead, David. Yeah, Happy New Year. Uh, hello to Donna, Mike, Jamie, and everyone else tuning in. Again, as Mike mentioned, my name is David Bridges. I'm a full-time uh, practicing attorney and a former full-time law enforcement officer. And although I'm here today to talk about uh, general information regarding uh, the involvement of my state and local law enforcement teams for fire and arson investigations, this is not going to be intended to uh, provide or replace legal advice in any way. So, uh, my observations today are going to be strictly limited to uh, educational background to assist in your understanding for those subject matters. And, you know, as such, if you have any legal-related questions uh, specifically, uh, please consult with your own attorney before taking any action. Well, thanks for, <clears throat> for, thanks for that. <clears throat> Jamie, did you want to do any disclaimer about what you're about to say or anything like that? No, I'm leaving now because I thought I was going to get some free advice here. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, Jamie, you're the you're the fire the fire department expert here. We're gonna we're gonna ask you a couple of questions, uh, and here it is. How do fire departments? Uh, well, at first they extinguish them, and then they investigate fires. How how do they how they interact with uh, law enforcement and private investigators after they do that? Since this is a team show. Well. One of the things that starts out with every fire investigation, it starts out with the firefighters putting it out. They can make or break a case with how they put the fire out and how they do their salvage and overhaul. We kind of joke that uh, firefighters are evidence eradication team because they like to rip tear and, and break windows and do everything to help put out the fire. But once we train them to do things right, then it's up to the fire investigator to try to determine the origin of the fire and then determine the cause. And then like at St. Paul, we work closely with our uh, police, which we have a uh, police sergeant investigator right in the fire station that works with us closely. Once we determine it's arson, they take the ball from there and try to determine who did it. And we'll also work with them or help them, but they take the ball from there and run to try to figure out who set the fire. Right. Um, so usually the the fire department person is not really the one that's uh, doing the entire follow-up. Is that correct? Not not in St. Paul and not in a lot of Minnesota. The uh, Here, 
the fire service doesn't have any police powers. Even the fire investigators and even the deputy state fire marshals don't have police powers. They kind of work hand in hand with the local law enforcement officer of either their city or um, in the case of the state fire marshal's office, they'll work with the sheriff's office or the police department and or like the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. And that gets me to ask, David, um, how law enforcement interacts with the fire departments and privates uh, under arson immunity acts so forth. Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, Jamie did a great job of touching on one of the key points uh, earlier. Uh, you know, law enforcement traditionally, uh, going back to uh, even a long time before I was born, when Jamie was uh, in the prime of his career, uh, law enforcement <laughs> would be would, law enforcement would be called in. You know, perhaps when there was an obvious sign of an arson or a burning related offense and. Uh, I think now, and I think everyone would probably agree that we're in more of a progressive, uh, proactive state now that, you know, as he mentioned, uh, law enforcement and fire service and other assisting and lead agencies are working hand in hand to, to further those interests. And um, as such, uh, you know, the, because these cases are so, uh, so uh, involved and science-based, uh, you have to be proactive to get out ahead of the facts and to help push those developments to, uh, to even reach a, uh, you know, an arrest or even a, a successful prosecution. Right. And so what is the, uh, your use of arrest powers law enforcement office, officer? How do you, how do you use arrest power as a law enforcement officer? I mean, do you have to have a, a special warrants or, or can you, can you talk to uh, others or what? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, in law enforcement, specifically conducting fire investigations, you've actually got to be uh, first and foremost concerned with uh, your legal authority for conducting the search. As Jamie said, when the, the fire department and other first responders are quick to arrive on the scene, they get there first while the information is fresh. Um, and as that temporal proximity to the incident uh, sort of extends or you increase the time, uh, the the uh, it increases uh, the the expectation of privacy for re-entering that scene, and so uh, you've got to be concerned first with the legal authority. And you know, of course, there are several ways to conduct a fire scene investigation, um, whether it's law enforcement or fire service. The first of which is under exigent circumstances uh, or emergency circumstances, while the uh, the incident is being mitigated and hazards are being mitigated. Then, of course, uh, you can obtain consent. Uh, then you can conduct a search uh, based on probable cause uh, derived from the Fourth Amendment uh, by uh, a search warrant. And then there are also ways you can conduct a uh, limited origin and cause investigation through an administrative inspection warrant. And these are the, the four common ways uh, throughout the United States. And, again, those are going to vary by policy and in, in, in the specifics of the case as well as the agency that's conducting the investigation. And Jamie, I want to ask you, give us the reason fire and police can conduct investigations, it seems. Well, the, uh, the courts have ruled it's in the best interest for us to try to determine the origin and cause of the fire so that one, we can prevent it from happening in the future because most fires are caused by three things, men, women, and children. You get rid of people, you quit having fires because it's all the dumb things we do to the arson. So the courts have ruled, you know, it's a responsibility of the fire service to investigate. Once they put out the fire, they should stay there and investigate to, to try to determine what happened in the best interest of public safety. So we're supposed to stay there and try to figure out what caused the fire. And if we determine it's a crime, then we forwarded on to the police department to help with further investigating to try to figure out who set that fire. Right, and, and you don't have to have a you don't have to have a warrant to do that, do you? Nope. Under extingent circumstances, we can uh, stay at the fire scene once the fire's put out and stay there for a reasonable amount of time to try to determine the origin and cause of the fire. 
And in many cases, uh, you even uh, if if there's some kind of mitigating factor like uh, darkness or or something, or you need to to get get together a team, uh, you can leave a leave a person there securing the scene. Can you not? That's correct. We can. Let's say we put out a fire uh, today in beautiful uh, sunny Minnesota, where it's about minus uh, seven degrees, <laughs> and we could uh, say, hey, because of the cold weather and maybe it's dark now we could uh, put somebody at the scene to secure it or somehow secure the scene and come back in the morning when we can see better and maybe the steam has stopped steaming from the water on the cold uh, and we could come back in the morning and finish our investigation. But once we uh, leave the scene, then we need to go back, either get written consent or get uh, um, a search warrant to go back and uh, try to investigate further. Oh yeah, well, you've even uh, you've even had to secure scenes for, or not secure, but at least uh, protect the scenes for uh, for uh, a long period of time, right? On the ice palaces that need to be uh, thought out. Tell us one about yeah, one of those. Yeah, once in a while we have to build either structures over the uh, the uh, structures over the burn structure and warm it up and thaw it out to investigate, or there's been a few times where we've just covered it up and waited a couple of months for uh, spring to come and then investigate. <laughs> well, I Something think they never to... comprehend down in Florida. Yeah, yeah, I can think not, or California. Um, yeah. However, yes, I, yeah, we had one here in, in, uh, in Missouri one time where we had to wait a couple of months. We had to secure it, as, as you said, built a, a, a structure over it, and then after um, a couple of months, uh, dug out the basement and still got positive hits for gasoline uh, set fire. Uh, David, you, um, you as a law enforcement officer, uh, are involved uh, or got called in. Did you get called in by the fire department originally uh, saying that they were, uh, or did you work as a team with them as they investigated the fire? Yeah, that's a great question, too. As Jamie touched on earlier, it's going to be dependent in every state. In my uh, prior uh, career um, as a law enforcement officer, I worked for the state of North Carolina, specifically the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. That agency in North Carolina is the lead agency, or, or they have original jurisdiction in all fires. And so although there's the state fire marshal's office in North Carolina, they do nothing uh, with origin and call determination. So in North Carolina, my agency was the the lead agency, but we we received our requests from uh, various uh, local, uh, state, and other federal agencies. So routinely, I would receive calls for assistance from uh, fire departments, uh, their investigators, their fire chiefs, uh, their fire marshals, uh, law enforcement agencies, chiefs of police, sheriffs, elected sheriffs, uh, as well as their investigators and many other agencies, but we would receive those calls for assistance, and then we would come in and assist them with the origin calls as well as the subsequent uh, follow-up investigation, uh, whether it was uh, moving towards an, an accidental cause or a criminal uh, act. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about private investigators, but first, we have a listener just sent in a question uh, from both of you wants to know how you each handle aggressive occupants or insureds. Um, you know, usually just talking with them and uh, explaining what you're doing usually resolves the matter. I've not had too many problems with aggressive uh, insureds that I've had a big problem on the city side when I'm doing it for uh, the fire department. Um, if a person doesn't calm down, we can always call the uh, police. Usually it's more uh, fighting amongst tenants, blaming the fire on each other and having some uh, um, issues there. But when you threaten to uh, stop a Salvation Army or Red Cross from showing up, they tend to cooperate a little bit better. Right. <laughs> and what about that, you, David? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. What about yeah, you, David? Yeah, I mean, sim- similarly, I mean, it's all about understanding expectations and managing um, those expectations when when someone uh, experiences a fire loss, whether it's property damage only or um, whether, unfortunately, they've, they've lost a loved one or been injured, they have expectations. And they, they for those people, those are often at times the worst 
uh, types of uh, devastation that they could experience. So it's understanding those, the situations they're going through and understanding what they need, uh, what their concerns are. But once you figure that out and uh, once you help uh, capture that, it, it really allows you to sort of lessen the degree that they might be anxious or uh, excited or frustrated, and, and it kind of helps out. Well, I want to preface this. So it, it, just for our listeners, in when a fire occurs, the fire department responds. Uh, we've talked a little bit about law enforcement may be called in. Uh, they typically respond at the same time, but to actually be called in if, if there's something going on that is in their jurisdiction. And now I want to talk about private fire investigators, and you both have experience in how they, they end up in that mix. Sure. So, Usually uh, when the private investigator gets uh, called, it's because the insurance company or the uh, manufacturer, somebody wants to find out if their product was involved in a fire or for the insurance company to determine the origin and cause of the fire. And people naturally think, well, the fire department does that. Why don't they just use their investigator? As an investigator for the city of St. Paul, my biggest concern is, one, make sure that it's not arson and look at that. When it comes to the accidental portion of it, yes, I'd like to know the cause, but we don't go in depth of exactly why that TV set failed or why some product failed. We just know that it started at the TV set, and then we leave it up to the insurance company to figure out why. Um, so that's where the private investigator gets involved. It's his job is to help determine that origin and cause also, and then bring in other experts such as mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, fire protection engineers who are maybe more concerned about why didn't the sprinkler system go off, you know, who's responsible. Because for the insurance company... Their number one is make sure that the uh, insured is involved in the fire being intentionally set. But more importantly, and that's where I think people think that insurance companies always want to deny, their number one thing is to take care of the customer and then also see if there's some way they can recover their money by finding that it was a product that caused the fire and then sue that product. And that's kind of where David comes in as he helps on that end, and I'll let him explain that. Yeah, and I'll just follow up briefly. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what Jamie said. And I also want to add, you know, he touched earlier about uh, the importance of uh, when the public sector investigator, when they determine uh, their, uh, when they make their observations or findings based on that state statute or their uh, internal policies, they stop. And it's understanding and recognizing the importance that someone else may have an interest in the outcome of that investigation. And so um, it's important for uh, the public sector and the private sectors to understand where that line is to help preserve the evidence, to help preserve those patterns and, and other critical pieces of information that someone else may later want to come back and revisit. And, uh, you know, we all learned in, in grade school um, about, you know, the low cards exchange principle basically says that Anytime you make contact with an, with a, uh, an environment by way of a person, place, or thing, that it results in that exchange of physical materials. And that's sort of the, the policy that drives the need to allow others to view the evidence in the same way that uh, the other parties have been able to. And so by Jamie mentioning that they, they often at times stop when they accomplish their public sector objectives, they also are doing a great service to other parties by preserving that information and evidence so that other parties can look at it. And that's a, a critical part of the public and private sectors working, um, you know, in conjunction with one another. Okay, well, that's good. Um, not only good, it's it's uh, beneficial. Uh, Jamie, and can you give me a, one of your wonderful stories in about two minutes? I'm going to ask you for a two-minute story. I'm going to ask uh, uh, David for one. Give me one of your wonderful experiences, will you? Um, I'm uh, at a loss right at the minute. David, go first, and then I'll think of mine. But <laughs> Go ahead. 
Go ahead, David. All right. I, I, you know, I was going to actually uh, ask if, if I could uh, allow James to tell a story for me, but no, I'll go. I'll go briefly. I had a case that I uh, investigated on behalf of the state of North Carolina that um, you know it really drove drove home the point of. Uh, pursuing the evidence wherever it, le- it led. And this was a matter that involved a, a public official um, in the state of North Carolina, that, and there were some allegations and evidence that he had committed insurance fraud. And that's how I got the case, and it involved uh, some fire damage to his uh, structure and, and personal property. And uh, when I got the case, uh, I was bombarded with people telling me to, you know, give me reasons not to investigate. You know, it's going to be too difficult. You're not going to be able to determine anything. Uh, there's all kinds of political pressure that was being uh, driven my way. And fortunately for me, I had I had a, a, a good group of, uh, you know, local and, and state uh, agencies and investigators that worked with me hand in hand, utilizing the team concept to uh, move that case forward. And ultimately, uh, we determined uh, that there was probable cause that the uh, that the official had committed insurance fraud, and um, we we had a prosecutor who believed in pursuing the evidence wherever it took us, and uh, actually uh, obtained a true bill of indictment for the official. And it actually uh, pled out in state court. So that was a successful uh, case where everyone worked together, um, bring together your everyone's unique skills and abilities, because we can't all be great at everything. But uh, together, collectively, we uh, we pursued the evidence and uh, got a uh, found the truth at the end of the day. And then the uh, the court, uh, the courts accepted his uh, plea agreement in that case. That's great. Um, that goes to show you, I know fire and police uh, do set fires too, and that's very unfortunate, but we do prosecute them. Uh, Jamie, did you think of something? Yep, you bet. I just, you know, I, I look back to the start of my career to now, and when I started, I looked like I was on the high school work program. I was 24, 25 when I started at the state fire marshal's office. My first fire I went to, when I jumped onto the fire line tape, the chief yelled at me to get the hell out of there. And I'm like, but I'm your deputy state fire marshal. He apologized. <laughs> I ended up growing a mustache and putting on a sport coat and tie to try to look older. But I just remember early on having uh, old-time fire investigators say, well, work out the same deal as the last deputy state fire marshal. And I'm like, sure, what's that? He said, well, I'll just call you and let you know. I had a fire death, and he turned around and looked at all his friends and said, I've heard with my 20 years, if I can't figure out, he won't be able to. We ended up becoming good friends, but there was more of this guy's fires that he was going to call accidental electrical that ended up being called arson. And I think that's one of the things that got me real interested in training and teaching because of the fact that a lot of the way fire investigation used to be was passed down from fire investigator to fire investigator, and some call it wives' tales. I I say it should be men's tales because it was mostly men that screwed up this profession back then. Now I think it's come a long way and we're more scientific, and that's, you know, one of the things I uh, love about teaching and sharing information, and I never discount a new uh, investigator maybe seeing something with fresh eyes that I might miss. Um, as an older um, investigator. And that's why, you know, I teach around the country with these burn-to-learn seminars where we actually burn stuff so that investigators get experience seeing stuff burn right in front of them rather than seeing it in a PowerPoint or a book or something like that. Yeah, well, you know, I know that you've done, uh, I don't know, well, over a thousand fires for testing and training and blown up a few of them, more uh, more of them. Is, is that because you're a pyromaniac? Is is that the reason? <laughs> at heart, you? at heart, yeah. but never been convicted. <laughs> yeah, well, and David, too, I can attest to that. Yeah. And so, and all right, well, I want to tell you guys, you, you've given us a, a bunch of really great information. Um, I want to thank, uh, I want to thank you for being here. But I also want to say, um, since both of you are, uh, Jamie, you're doing private work at, at, uh, um, at Novak Investigations and David now, why did you cross over? You're a CFI, you're a fire, certified fire investigator. Why did you part, cross over to the 
um, dark side of uh, being a, an attorney? I mean, my God, we got 30 seconds. Tell me why. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> if I would have scored higher on the test, I would have been a career firefighter like Jamie. But <laughs> in, in short, in, in a nutshell, uh, I got started in law enforcement, identified that I wanted to be a career firefighter. And it wasn't until I, uh, I, I, I got a, a correction. I started out as a, in the volunteer fire service and decided I wanted to get into investigations, which led me to law enforcement. It wasn't until I had become a, a CFI and, and actively involved with those cases that I identified that there was a need for uh, technically trained counsel to advance those fire and arson and explosion-related cases forward. And so, in a nutshell, uh, looking back, I never imagined me being in this line of work today, but if, if you were to look at where I've been, you would have said naturally you, you're being driven toward this area. And it's just identifying the need and, uh, and moving forward and getting those skills that, and, and, and trainings that you can uh, help someone else find the, the truth in these cases. Well, thank. Well, yeah, I think that's a that's a noble, it's a noble idea. And uh, anyway, so in our next segment, and and gentlemen, uh, again, you, uh, goodbye and thank you. We're going to uh, switch now to a state fire marshal, uh, Greg Carroll okay. uh, from Missouri. Don't hang up. Don't, don't hang, hang up. Don't hang up. And we'll uh, we'll be right back to you. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, just come back to, with us and come back to speaking of fire. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for listening. And I wanted to I, I want to tell you how honored I am to have two very prestigious people uh, on our show now. Um, as as earlier, the fire investigators that you just heard, these these people have uh, have distinguished themselves in their careers. Uh, first, we're going to have Greg Carroll, who's the acting uh, fire marshal, uh, state fire marshal for Missouri. Uh, he uh, he was a police officer in uh, St. James, Missouri, and a volunteer firefighter and a certified fire investigator. And in his 30 years with the state fire marshal's office, he's been an investigator, uh, an accelerant canine uh, detection uh, ha- handler, and uh, has participated in 2,500 investigations and, uh, in, and was promoted uh, to assistant state fire marshal um, in 2005 and now is the acting state fire marshal. Also with us is uh, Wally Roberts. 
Raleigh Roberts has been involved in public safety for over 35 years and is the the current chief of investigations division of the Kansas State Fire Marshal's Office. And he uh, was a police officer in Topeka, Kansas, and a volunteer fighter, a firefighter of the local department. He was a, a U.S. Army vet, uh, a, a military police investigator, um, and he also uh, is uh, a director or was an active member of the International Association of Arson Investigators and is on the board of directors for the Kansas chapter. And he has uh, 16 years of investigating origin and cause of fires. Um, first of all, we'll start with you, Greg. Uh, you are the acting state fire marshal uh, in the state of Missouri. And uh, one of the things we'd like to know is what, what are the duties of the state fire marshal? Well, Mike, Donna, first, good afternoon. Glad to be on. And, uh, you know, it seems like most of my duties are signing my name. I sign my name an awful lot. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in the uh, State Fire Marshal's Office, we're fairly diverse. You know, we regulate uh, oh, amusement rides and elevators and boilers and uh, do inspections in assisted living facilities and daycares, as well as, you know, what we were primarily formed for back in 1972, the investigation of fires to determine the origin and cause. And, uh, you know, it worked the, the criminal side or the, the uh, if it's accidental, try to determine if there's some object we need to look at for recall and that sort of thing. So it's a fairly diverse agency that I have here. Well, and you also, uh, you're, you do also st- still investigate fires, but you also uh, do have uh, fire marshal inspectors, right? Yes, we do. We have uh, we have investigators that go out and do fire investigations, scene investigations, explosions, explosives, that sort of thing. And then we have inspectors that go out and do uh, basically code enforcement in certain state licensed facilities. Um, you know, but probably our biggest thing right now is training. We do a, a ton of training and certification. Probably the the number one thing for touching fire service in our state is the training and certification. Well, we were just talking to Jamie and David about the fire department, the law enforcement aspect. Um, How do state investigators interact with fire departments, law enforcement, and private investigators? You know, most of our investigators are, well, obviously they're law enforcement. Uh, They come from the law enforcement world, uh, but almost all of them have a tie back to a fire service, either volunteer or a career firefighter. Uh, so, you know, they've, they've cut their teeth on fire service. It makes them easy to interact. I often tell somebody it's the uh, the best of two worlds because, you know, we don't have to go out and chase taillights anymore and write traffic tickets, but we get to interact with our fire service people uh, the daily. And then, of course, it's the private side. And, you know, you look at other agencies, the states, the federal, uh, the other people that we work with, even other states, uh, which, you know, Wally and his group, we've worked with, uh, with uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, Nebraska on a regular basis on, you know, crimes don't always occur on, you know, right on the state line, one side or the other, but it's a lot of the same players. So our people have to interact uh, with all of those. The other thing is, is that being a state agency, we're not flush with money. So, you know, when we need the assistance of heavy equipment and those sort of things, uh, that's when you, you interact with the private sector uh, to hopefully get the insurance companies or the private investigators involved to assist with some of that. So, the state investigators, are they also state police officers? Um, and how does that work like with local police officers? How, how, how do we differentiate that? Yeah, our, our, all of our investigators are post-certified police officers in the state of Missouri. Uh, they have powers of arrest for, and it's a really broad subject, it's arson and arson-related crimes, or when they're assisting other agencies. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a fairly broad power of arrest. Now, the good thing about that is because a lot of law enforcement agencies are very small in our state, and they don't have the manpower to be able to go out and, and spend a lot of time on the investigation. So if, if it is one of those areas where we can be involved, uh, we do everything from soup to nuts. You know, we, we go in and, and do the interviews. We'll do the warrant applications. We'll make the arrest. In places where they have a more robust law enforcement presence, then we assist and we provide that technical expertise so then they can go back and do the rest of the work. Uh, it just kind of weaves in and out depending upon what the law enforcement capability is. 
Great. Um, I wanted to ask Wally to uh, get him involved here. Wally, you're, you're the Chief Investigations Division of the State Fire Marshal. Uh, do you find that uh, true in Kansas, too, that uh, that you're actually doing a lot of the investigations because of these smaller departments? Yeah, we do. Uh, we're very similar to what Missouri does. Um, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we also are not a large agency, but we are somewhat sometimes larger than uh, the local agency that we're assisting. Um, and so, yeah, we, we go in just like uh, my counterpart, Missouri, said, uh, we do, you know, for the nuts and bolts all the way to an assist uh, uh, the larger agencies. Yeah, and in fact, you uh, you're st- are you still working? Uh, I know you have 107 counties and you have a, a, a relatively small department. Are you still working investigations yourself? I do. Uh you know, I'm not going to have uh, some of my people go out and do something I'm not uh, willing to go out and do. And uh, I carry a shovel just like they do, and I go out and take cases uh, uh, just like they do. That's great. Uh, and you were a, a dog handler one time, weren't you? I was. I was uh, uh, we're, we're blessed enough to have uh, two ATF accelerant canines, and uh, when I was a canine handler, I handled an ATF explosives dog. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, it, it, that was many years ago when I first started, but uh, it was a good time. Probably one of the best parts of my career. You still have all your fingers and toes as far as you have you counted them? <laughs> yeah, you've counted them recently? Okay, good. Well, and Greg, you were a dog handler also. I was. I ran a accelerant detection canine, arson canine, uh, for 12 years. Uh, ours came out of the uh, State Farm Program. And at one time, we actually had four arson dogs and uh, two explosive detection canines, but you know, as people have retired or moved up into administration, uh, we've kind of dropped that program. That's something I'd like to explore again, and I think there's always that need for it. Uh, we've been lucky. There's a few agencies in our state that still have dogs, and we use them on a regular basis. Well, and I remember <clears throat> back in the 90s, and I coughed on purpose <laughs> because I actually learned from you about, the, because you were coming to the International Association of Arson mm-hmm. Investigators, uh, both internationally and at at chapter levels, you were one of the pioneers for that program. I remember that. Yeah, I was. I was actually uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob Jacobson, and I were the first uh, dog handlers in Missouri, and actually uh, some of the first dog handlers in the country. And you know, it was it was a brave new world for us. A lot of things to learn. Uh, but I will tell you, just as Wally mentioned a minute ago, I think it was probably the best part of the job that I've ever had. You know, they paid for me to play with a dog. And uh, everyone loved the dog. They may not remember me, but they always remembered him. So I could get in a lot of trouble, and they wouldn't remember it because Gus was always the uh, the the person, the thing, the person, the animal that they wanted to see. I say person because he really was a person. He didn't know any better. But, but <laughs> he knew that's, that's true. There were there were times when I would go and visit an agency, and they would kick me out saying, "Go get my dog," and and they yeah. all wanted to see see AJ, who was oh, my canine yeah. at the time. Right. Most, most of my most of my departments would page me and say, "Hey, Gus, get Greg out of bed and bring him out to a fire." So yeah, it was it, it was probably the most rewarding part of the job that we'd had. Uh, it was just a, a great time. Well, you know, uh, both of you have worked really hard and and um, and and progressed in your careers, and we and we uh, we appreciate you. Well, we'll ask you one at a time, uh, uh, Greg. Uh, in Missouri, how uh, roughly how many? How many investigations or how many calls do you get a year? Do you, I imagine it's it's enormous. Well, you know, you would think it's it's more than it is. It's it really runs every year. Seems to be different. You know, our peak is about fourteen hundred that will run uh, with our. You know, basically, uh, we have fifteen field investigators and two field supervisors, so they'll run. You know, anywhere from ninety to a hundred per investigator uh, some years it's actually a little lower we'll be down around that thousand number it really just there there is feast or famine sort of time with them uh, when I was in the field it was about a hundred a year that we would run sometimes 120 a year uh, but mm-hmm. when I first started there was only eight investigators in the state so it we have we have progressed and grown uh, and, and made it a little easier to do the follow-up work well yeah yeah well I, I We've worked with your office, and we know that you're, you guys are professionals. Wally, um, also, how many, how many, uh, uh, I guess, calls or, or things do you run a year? We average uh, around 400 a year. 
Um, we don't have a, a, as many people as Missouri does. We've got uh, 10 agents in the field, and of that two, those are uh, field supervisors. Um, but we average uh, anywhere from 45 to 60 uh, per investigator uh, a year. You also have a professional uh, organization, and you have 107 counties, which I think is an, uh, enormous. Uh, Kansas is 427 miles wide. And uh, uh, what about these smaller counties? Uh, um, I imagine it's up to your investigators to, to have the report to have them call you, correct? Yeah, uh, the, the way it works here in Kansas is uh, a lot of the smaller agencies, they'll uh, uh, reach out to the investigator uh, on a cell phone or at home and uh, request his assistance to come out and give them a hand on any uh, fire scene that they may have or an explosive scene or, or anything like that. So. Okay. And, and, um, and you, you, and I'm going to ask this to Greg here in a second, too. Uh, what is your, um, uh, how, how does it work with uh, the Arson Immunity Act with uh, private investigators? Uh, your, your fire marshal's office, I found all your investigators to be very friendly. Um, how does this work? Uh, here in Kansas, uh, you know, with the Arson Immunity Act, if, uh, uh, the insurance company will send us a letter requesting a copy of our report. Um, if it's a, a criminal case that we're working, we'll go ahead and uh, send them uh, an immunity letter back. And then uh, uh, dealing with the privates, uh, I feel we have a pretty good relationship with uh, probably 90% of them. Uh, every once in a while, we'll get one that we're, we've never worked with before. Uh, but uh, we try to share the information uh, with each other uh, because it's at the end of the day, it's one big team. You know, you still have to conduct our own individual investigations, but um, it's one big team. And we're all after the uh, the same thing, which is to, exactly what happened in this in that fire. That's the truth. Yes, and uh, in fact, that's part of our code of ethics: uh, we're truth seekers, not case makers. Um, Greg. Um, what about what about your relationship with private investigators in Missouri? You know, our arson immunity acts just like Kansas. We uh, we exchange information. Uh, you know, we have a great working relationship, and and you know, I would say ninety percent, maybe even more than that. And I think most of the time, if we don't have a great working relationship, it's because we don't know somebody. It's it's not a you know, it's not a matter of that we're antagonistic. It's a matter that. Uh, we just haven't got a chance to work with them very much. But, you know, I'm thinking about some of the people in the field over the years that, that you and I have actually worked with, you know, private to private or private to public. Um, and, you know, I think we've always got along with everybody, by and large. The the issue you have, of course, obviously, when you get into like a criminal fraud case, uh, more so than even like a an incendiary fire, uh, you have to just be very careful, you know, to make sure there's not some allegation of collusion between the insurance company and the and the the state. And the private is always kind of right in the middle there of that, you know, because it's 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 a delicate balance for them too. So and and we know that. So we try not to ever put anyone in a position where they they have to uh, bend their ethical beliefs. And uh, I think we work well together. I, I've always enjoyed the relationship that I've had with our investigators on the private side, and even the the public investigators. You know, for the the fire departments, the municipalities. Uh, I think we have a great working relationship with everybody, and it makes the job a lot more. Uh, it, it's just easier to do our job. It's easier to come to those conclusions that you need to get to when everybody works together. Well, that's what it, what you say is true. It, it's all about education, and that's why we all get trained together and so forth. When it comes to an arson, the victim is actually, uh, typically, most arsons are for profit, which means the person is going to file a claim with an insurance company. Most private investigators are working for that insurance company uh, to determine what happened, if it was arson, determine if it was done by their insured to defraud the insurance company. And so the insurance company really is a victim. And yeah. so there's there there are two interests there. And go ahead and talk about that. Well, one of the things I was going to say, one of the things that always had bothered me as a uh, fire investigator was, you know, the the victimless crime, you know, the arson, the property crime of arson. And, you know, and I've always thought about that. And, you know, if someone comes in and sets your stuff on fire and you don't get to use it and they don't get to use it and you've lost things like your family photos, how is that victimless? You know, how is that a crime against property? I mean, that to me would be the the, the worst form of assault. 
And so when you look at it just from those type of fires, you know, it, I've never really seen it as just a property loss. Now, you, you slip over into the, the victims being the insurance company or the bank, the, the lien holders, uh, other mm-hmm. partners maybe in a business, uh, those sort of people. Uh, the list becomes long. And, you know, there's always those two worlds you've got to work in, the criminal side and the civil side. And, you know, the, the criminal side sometimes is just so difficult in the arson world to be able to prove. So you have to fall back into the civil side of it to hopefully prove, um, you know, what you need to in order to keep a claim from being paid or, or someone from losing money. Uh, so I, I think it's important that we work both sides. I think it's important that we look at both cases and not just be focused on a primary or a criminal or a civil investigation. Right, and uh, and I've I've always found your office to be extremely cooperative, uh, and we um, and we do have uh, we're truth seekers, not case makers. We are not trying to make a case against somebody. We're just f- seeing where the evidence leads us. And Wally, in that in that regard, um, I'm sure that you have some kind of a system where you uh, take a look at the investigation and 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 they have to file reports. Do you have a review process for those reports? Uh, internally, uh, when I took over as a chief, I started something, uh, a peer review process uh, internally, um, where uh, I go work investigation, and uh, once I write my report, I'm sending it to uh, some of the people that are below me, and I ask them to peer review my report, um, and uh, it, it's usually sent out to two to three people. Uh, they're checking, you know, my grammatical errors, because uh, I am not very good at that. That's not my forte, but uh, uh, they're checking that. They're making sure that uh, uh, there is a peer process in, in it, for the scientific pro- process that we do do, um, and they make sure that it is uh, understandable and legible and readable uh, for the uh, end reader. That's our, that's our product that we put out. They make sure it looks professional and it's understandable and it's, and it's true and correct. Well, thank you. Um- we, Go ahead, Donna. Oh, we, we actually have a question that just came in. Can you ask each guest what is a big recent case their agency worked and how they interacted with local agencies? Go ahead, Greg. Well, you got one. Uh, I'm you? just trying to think of a colleague. There's so many. <laughs> you know, it's a okay. daily thing for us. Um, yeah. I, how about you, know, you, Wally? Have you got any that's that's recent? We have a uh, we have a homicide that's currently ongoing right now that we're working with some local agencies, both stateside and uh, local, with the sheriff's office in one side and the local KBI. We've got a, another case that uh, we're working on in Western Kansas that just came in. It's about a two and a half million dollar fire uh, fire loss uh, that we're working with the insurance company, uh, the local agencies uh, in that area as well. But again, like like Greg said, it's it's. It's a daily process. I mean, you never know when it's coming in, and when it does, you're always working with whether it's uh, local partners, another state agency, or the ATF with our federal partners. Yeah, you know, and, and with our case, you know, we've we've had cases where it'll start out as what we consider a fairly mundane, maybe a vacant house fire, a, a case that right now just just came to light. Uh, a couple of vacant houses in a very rural part of the state burned, and and through the investigator working with the local fire service and taking some tips that they had, and the local sheriff's department, uh, even from two counties actually, with some information they had gleaned about some people seen in the area, we ended up clearing up uh, six uh, structure fires over the course of about a year uh, that had been set by the same individuals. Uh, so, you know, that interaction, uh, they have to feel confident when they call you and give you the information, you're going to follow up with it. It's it's just something we do every day, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things like, because we do it every day, it's tough to pull out a single specific cause. I mean, I could run down my daily log that I get and probably pull, you know, 10 or 15 fires that, uh, you know, over the course of a week where we've done exactly that, interacted with the locals uh, worked with them to, to glean information or even provided them information through the arson hotline that then they followed up on and created an arrest or cleared a case. Well, I'm, I'm really there's happy. One, there's one I'm thinking of off the top of my head is uh, we work just a, like Greg said, an, an easy vacant house fire and ended up developing information that led to uh, several burglaries and uh, we helped that local agency solve uh, several burglaries out of a, just a, a, a vacant house fire. 
Yeah, well, good. And, and well, I'm glad you're working together. Now, I, I was asked by Greg uh, to to bring up something, and we only have two minutes left, Greg. Uh, let's talk about uh, the what you're passionate about, the cancer rates in, in the fire service, et cetera. It has become a passion. You know, um, uh, we're, we're seeing a couple of things happening in our fire service and, and in law enforcement, too. And I think my passion is driven by a couple of points that I'll hit in just a minute. But, you know, we're starting to see some cancer rates. We're starting to study uh, cancer in in firefighters, fire investigators, even training officers who are exposed to the constant carcinogens, um, you know, in the bunker gear being worn over and over again. Or, or in, like we did in the old days, I'm sure Wally and, and Mike, you, we did the same thing. We'd walk into fire scenes without breathing apparatus on and inhale probably things we shouldn't have. We're starting to yeah. see these cancer rates going up now. And, you know, we're trying to educate and trying to work on the new investigators and, and training them that, you know, you've got to use the protective equipment. PPE is important. And, you know, uh, just like the old days when firefighters didn't want to wear SCBAs, uh, we've got to get better at this. And it becomes even a greater problem because, quick story, um, my wife is a breast cancer survivor. Um, no genetic dis- disposition to ever have had breast cancer. And the only tie we have is that for 20 years, she washed my fire scene soaked clothes, you know, pretty much every day. And the, the carcinogens were starting to see transfer of that. And I get thinking about my two children uh, that grew up in the house with their clothing being washed with these same clothes. And, you know, down the road, is there going to be problems with them? And as, you know, as a parent, as a husband, I have to think, we step in front every day to protect others, and yet we bring stuff like this home to our families or to ourselves. And I think we've got to make a change in the culture. We, we've really got to, or the environment, if, if you listen to some of the other people, it's, we've got to make a change on this. Uh, right. And, and, and I have a son that's military, you know, and he was exposed to some burning pits in Iraq, and they're seeing some of the same things on the military side, too. So there's got to be a common tie. We've got to work on it. And I thank you for that. And that's exactly true. And I'm sure, Wally, you, you join in that uh, that uh, thought. Um, once on, I want to I plugged last last time I was here. I, I plugged ProVets.org, which is a charitable uh, uh, organization for for vets. Now, the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, which is at www.firehero.org, is also takes charity donations. Um, and they assist uh, fallen firefighters' families, and also maintain the um, the, uh, the monument at uh, at uh, at the National Fire Academy. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you guys uh, for being here, both of you. Um, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna end the show, but I have to uh, tell us that next week. Um, next week we have uh, some some guys for how the insurance industry fights arson. It's Joe Toscano, who is well known throughout the fire investigation community as an, a lecturer, a speaker, an investigator. Uh, Kathleen Alverio, who's an ex uh, uh, SIU investigator, and Randy Watson, the the chairman of the 921 committee. Uh, and uh, he, that's uh, the guide to fire and explosion investigations. They're all here to talk to you next week. Thank and you for being here. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Wally. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.